Good afternoon and welcome to another edition of Confessing Our Hope, the podcast of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary. As usual, I'm your host, William Hill, and this is broadcast number 80, April 6th, 2015. And this is our monthly edition where we sit down with the president of Greenville Seminary and, and basically, well, not basically, we take your questions and we answer them on air. And so if we do do that, um, you are able to get... Um, get a free discount code to the Banner of Truth website. So send in your questions. Confessingyourhope.com is the website. Now, you may have just heard myself twice. That's because I'm an idiot and my technology was messed up, but we're good now. And um, anyway, Dr. Pipe, it's good to have you on Thank again. You, and I'm not going to go through all the housekeeping that I usually do. We're just going to jump in, I think, because we have so many questions, which is great to see um, you write in as the listeners. And um, so... Unless you have any objections? Well, no, and if anybody is listening live, they can tweet questions in or follow up for questions with which we're dealing. That's right. I forgot about that. Anyway, okay. Oh, we're going to have fun, I hope. All right. Um, so we're just going to start here at the very top of the list. Uh, Gil writes in from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, and um, very short question, which I really love. Um, he asks, is the book The Morrow of Modern Divinity Antinomian? Does it teach antinomianism? Good to hear from you, Gil, and thank you for the question. I mentioned to Bill before we went on the air, Bill Bennett has a talk show in the morning, <laughs> 6 to 9, and he says he has the best listeners in the United States, and he doesn't know our listeners. I can tell you people from the quality of your questions that we've got a great audience, and we thank God for you. Let me give a little background for our listeners. The Marrow of Modern Divinity was a book written by a Puritan, dealing with the problem that was called neo-nomianism. Uh, Baxter and others taught a very strange view of justification, that when one was joined by faith to Christ, one was justified because God accepted imperfect works as perfect. And so it moved works back into the area of justification. And so the uh, Fisher wrote the Marrow of Modern Divinity as uh, a critique, a response to that position. The problem of legalism developed in the Church of Scotland in the 18th century, and um, my mind just went blank. The Marrow, uh, the Marrow Men, um, who wrote Fishers of Men, the Fourfold. Thomas Boston Thomas discovered Boston, the book. Right and thought it was a very good antidote to the problem that was resurfacing there. And so he uh, published that book with notes. The book, in my opinion, it's been a number of years since I've read it, is not antinomian, nor does it teach antinomianism. It does emphasize the grace of God in justification, and it does say some things in ways, at least in our day, I'm not sure I'd be comfortable saying with respect to the offers of the gospel. But it's a useful book. And if you want to know more about the book, uh, Dr. William uh, Van Duty Ward, who teaches uh, church history at Puritan Seminary, has done a uh, doctoral dissertation, I believe, on the marrow. And you can email him at that school, and he can uh, answer follow-up questions for you. He also gave a lecture at our conference on Boston and the Four Full State, and you can get that by uh, going to Sermon Audio and looking up that lecture by William Van Duty Ward on Thomas Boston. Yeah, good question, Gil. Thanks for writing in, and um, continue writing in, of course. Um, and thanks for listening to the program. William Tejeda writes in from San Antonio, Texas. I think this is the first time I've seen his name. But anyway, very good question. He asks, is there a biblical reason for a Christian to stop or even prevent having children? I'm thinking here of birth control and or surgical procedure for either the husband or wife. He goes on, Psalm 127 speaks of children being a reward, and yet this is not the attitude of the world or even parents in the church. I admit it is difficult for myself to believe sometimes, but then I think that children may be God's primary way of sanctifying my wife and I. <laughs> yes. <laughs> anyway, I want to be faithful to God's Word and live in a way that pleases Him. At the end of the day, 
every reason I can think of to try and get in the way of God's blessing us with more children, barring health issues, seems selfish. My wife and I are extremely fertile, still in our 20s, and seemingly could go on for a while. We currently have five children. Thanks for your counsel, and thank you all for the program. William, thank you uh, for a very thoughtful uh, question. And regardless of how I answer, it's going to get me in trouble. So uh, thank you for that as well. This is a resurfacing issue. Uh, we had a gentleman who I think is a prospective student at our, uh, here at the conference and gave me a book to read um, uh, in this whole area of the Christian and, uh, and birth control. I've not read his book yet, so I'm not swayed to his position yet. I think there are uh, some general things to keep in mind. In the first place, you're right. In our culture... And it's not just the United States, it's around the world. There's this uh, selfishness that curtails marriage, puts off having families, and then having uh, one, uh, maybe two children. When a couple could have more children in a very safe, healthy, balanced way. And so that definitely, I would say, is, uh, is wrong. Uh, we also are learning more and more about the birth control pill. And I've, in marriage counseling, used to always say that if it were not abortion patient. But I understand that at the end of the day, birth control pills, probably none of them really can be absolved from, uh, at times, causing a, um, an abortion. And so I counsel against the use of birth control pills. Now, with those two things... Uh, laid aside. Well, the third thing is a surgical procedure. Uh, definitely not if there's no health issues, and particularly when you're young. Even if, in God's providence, you and your wife decided to have no more children, it might be that one of you were to die, the other one remarry, and would want to have children by that uh, new spouse. In fact, I have a friend who's done that. She had five children. Her husband was killed. She married a couple of years later, and now she has two children with her new husband. If she had had uh, surgery that some had encouraged her to do, then she would not have had that privilege of having children with her um, new husband. So with those kind of background things, there are basically two positions. Uh, what's become very popular in reform circles today uh, is that uh, because children are a gift from God, that we have, we'll have as many children as God in his providence gives us because he's the one that does grant uh, conception. Now, my problem with that position is that we don't take that as Calvinists in any other area of life. Recognizing God's sovereignty, we still believe that we are to use means, and I don't think that that would change with respect to how many children we have now so i have a real problem with that position i find it to be a bit hyper calvinistic and i think that um that needs to be rethought on the other hand the idea of family planning birth control the philosophy behind that i think is not helpful i think a husband and his wife uh, a man and his wife pray and they look at their resources, uh, the health of the wife, their financial resources, and uh, prayerfully seek to determine um, before God the family that they think that they can uh, comfortably rear uh, if there are no health problems. Now, my wife had health problems, and the doctor told us we had to stop with two. I'm very thankful that both of my children have had five children each. So even though I only had two, I have ten grandchildren, and I'm thankful for that. So I'm not talking about small families, but I am talking about the resources then. So um, recognizing that uh, God, if you, you use biblically responsible means, and do you trust God? Now, most people that would say as many as God give us still pay attention to the calendar and uh, take certain precautions and 
So even there, there are precautions that are being taken. Mm -hmm. uh, and so I think really to be consistent with the view, children are a gift of the Lord. And we accept that as gifts. But I think that particularly today where we see more and more mothers homeschooling and, and those extra added responsibilities that it just needs to be something each couple decides and we don't legislate well, you have as many as god will give you or if you haven't had as this many then you're not holy or righteous and so i'm not telling you not to have more children you and your wife though before god must make that decision <laughs> but there is one other exegetical point that needs to be dealt with much more honestly openly today and that is in Genesis chapter 3, when God pronounces the consequences on the woman because of the fall. And in verse 16 in the New American Standard, it says, I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth, and pain you will bring forth children. The Hebrew literally is, I will greatly multiply your pain and your pregnancy. Mm. Now, this could be a grammatical form called a heniatus, heniatus that, uh, heniatus that uh, it's pain in childbirth, as most of the English translators translate it. But, in other words, your pain in though, though they're coordinates, they're, they're joined together. Uh, but it could, at least needs to be wrestled with, is this the fact that a greater ease of conception does, in one sense, hinder the sexual pleasure and relationship of mm. uh, a couple. It's also very important that the woman's um, needs be kept in mind, not just how many she can bear and handle, but we, if you pay any attention to the calendar, you have to recognize that the time that she's going to enjoy the relationship the most is the time that she's most apt to conceive. That's, again, how she's wired. So... Uh, we have to weigh all of these things. God is the Lord of the conscience. So I don't judge those that uh, would differ from me on this. And I trust they don't judge me. We all need to keep seeking uh, God's will as we make these kind of decisions. So to sum it up, don't be selfish. Don't think you can play God. You can't control birth. Um, but uh, if you believe that some kind of moderate uh, methods uh, are not wrong, then use those non-medical uh, type methods. Very good. And we did get a follow-up question. It's just a point of information. You mentioned a book earlier on in that, in, in your answer. Do you remember the title of it? I don't remember the, what you said. Because I'm only doing 10 different things over here. A book. You mentioned a book in your answer to this question. To this question. Yes. I think no, it was No, I don't this. have the name of it. I okay. said I was given the book at the conference, and it is there's a group that are seeking to expose people, Christians to kind of the whole birth control movement and the philosophy that came out of. Okay. Very good. Yeah, so someone listening live But asked. if you will uh, either contact me at the seminary or on my webpage, I will give you the title and author of the book. Which, by the way, I'm glad he said that. And um, we just put together um, josephpipa.com, um, where Dr. Pipa's writings, research, um, materials, uh, lectures, uh, there's videos there of lectures that Dr. Pipa has done recently and many years ago, actually. Um, <clears throat> Anyway, josephpiper.com, you can go there. All that information is now there. It's been put up, uh, uploaded, and, and, and organized. Very simple website to navigate, so uh, avail yourself of that. Of course, it's free, um, like most things on the Internet. So uh, anyway, use that resource. All right, let's move on. Next question comes from Anonymous. Um, and so I don't know what city, <laughs> obviously. Um, <clears throat> but uh, since I've mentioned that, let me also say this. If you write in and you want to be anonymous, in other words, you don't want me to write, read your name or where you live on the air, uh, that's fine, I can do that. But if you don't fill in the information, at least give me your email address, then I cannot forward you the discount code for the Banner of Truth discount at their store. 
Okay, so in this situation, it's one of those cases where I have no way of responding, so I don't know who it is. I can't give them the code, so you don't get the $10 discount um, there at Banner. So um, if you want me to be, uh, want me to do it anonymously, write in, use the information, but just indicate in your question, I would prefer to remain anonymous, and I will make sure that happens. And I have Dr. Piper here to back me up on that in case I overlook something, which is always possible. So anyway, with that said, the next question comes from Anonymous. And it's on the issue between the Westminster Standards and the three forms of unity. And he simply asks, what would you say are the substantive differences between the standards, the Westminster Standards, and the three forms of unity, assuming there are any? Should these differences stop a confessional Presbyterian from joining a URC congregation if there are no Presbyterian alternatives in the area? Very good. Thank you. For our hearers, the Westminster Standards consist of the Westminster Confession of Faith, the larger and shorter catechisms. The three forms of unity are an older set of documents. The uh, Belgic Confession and the Heidelberg Catechism and then the Canons of the Synod of Dort. The, in my opinion, there are no substantive differences between them. The Doctrinal, doctrinal difference would have to do with the nature of saving faith. The three forms of unity followed the first-generation reformers, or at least the Heidelberg Catechism does, in stating that uh, part of saving faith is the assurance that God has saved me. And thus, the whole approach to assurance of salvation begins a bit differently. Whereas in the standards... Um, the standards would Westminster standards would say that the Westminster, or that, or that the person must believe that God saves all those who truly call on Christ, and then give standards or procedures grounds for how one can determine if he's truly called on Christ. When you read some of the writers, at the end of the day, Calvin, for example, who took the first position, will tell people to examine themselves to be sure they're in Christ, lest they be deceived and hypocrites. And so, at the end of the day pastorally, practically, at least in the Reformation, post-Reformation era, there was not a lot of difference there. My problem with the three forms of unity is faith must be a response to a promise that's in the Bible, and I've yet to find my full name in the Bible. There are a number of Josephs in the Bible, but no Joseph Piper Jr.'s. And so there's nothing in the Bible that I can take hold on as a promise that's given to me directly. So I believe that if I truly call on Christ, God saves me, and that God loves to save sinners. Mm. But I still don't think it's a substantive difference. And by all means, go to the strongest Reformed church in your area in the first place, so that even if you were, even if you had a choice of a, a Presbyterian church and a URC church, and you thought that you're not a member of one, you're not shopping, but you move to an area and you're shopping, you, and you find that the preaching and the worship in one is more edifying, or the body life or whatever, I would be perfectly comfortable going to either one. But certainly uh, in an area where there is no Presbyterian, confessional Presbyterian alternative, uh, yes, by all means, go to URC. Now, I meant to point out there's a couple of other differences, and that is that the three forms tend to be less specific about some issues than the um, uh, Westminster Confession. And the two primary ones are the Lord's Day and creation. And so you're going to find, with respect to the Lord's Day, a greater diversity, although in, in my denomination we've got a lot of diversity with a more specific standard. Now, when you read uh, the authors of the Heidelberg Catechism, their commentary on the Heidelberg Catechism, they believed exactly in the same way that the framers of the Westminster Standards believed, as did Calvin. But that is a, a doctrinal or a confessional difference. And the other is a creation. The three forms of unity are just much less explicit with respect to creation. But uh, go to the strongest church you can, but by all means— if you want to be in a Reformed church, uh, don't stay away from a URC church if there's no Presbyterian alternative in town. Absolutely. Very good. And, um, well, there is no and. Uh, we're just going to move to the next question. Uh, and I'm going to do the best I can to read this. It's, it's, um, give me Dr. Knight's 
Yeah, and I'll get Doctor's Nice commentary for you in just a second. Oh, you can get it. You see, yeah, there you go. <laughs> it's First uh, Timothy. To the left. We're doing this live. We're doing a, a tour of the office studio. Go down, First Timothy. Right there. Second shelf from the bottom. Right, right there, you got your hand at it. Look at that. Very good. Okay. This is important because the next question is actually going to be needed. Anyway, you'll understand. All right, so um, Gideon writes in from Singapore, and he asked a question on hug. The, 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 the main subject is head covering. But here's the question. It, it's, it's somewhat involved, so I'm going to do the best I can. How to harmonize 1 Corinthians 11.5 with, with 1 Corinthians 14.34. 1 Corinthians 11.5 with 4, 1 Corinthians 14.34 and 1 Timothy 2.12. The former, that is 1 Corinthians 11.5, seems to give a warrant for a woman to pray and prophesy uh, roles of authority in public church gathering with the proviso that they be head-covered, whereas the latter categorically speaks otherwise. Correct me if I am wrong, but my two cents worth, 1 Corinthians 11.5 is actually a Pauline reductio ad absurdum in his argument that should a woman usurp the masculine authority to pray and prophesy in church, she might as well be head shaven. Granted, even if I am wrong, and this is indeed a scriptural warrant for headdress as the feminine public decorum for church worship, then is it not only in the specific context of praying and prophesying? I find it in eisegesis to extrapolate 1 Corinthians 11.5 to the whole of public worship, which of course includes singing and reading. Hi, Gideon. And Gideon, by the way, is one of our distant students, and I'll be at his church, Lord willing, this June in Singapore. So save all the rest of your questions until we get there. No, 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 I'm no, just no. Kidding. I'm just kidding. They're good questions. Everybody needs them. All right, just to <laughs> remind our audience, the First Corinthians 11 is the passage where Paul says that uh, every woman who has her head uncovered while praying or prophesying disgraces her head. For she is one and the same as the woman whose head is shaved. You play on words there, her head, and her disgraces her head, her husband, and, and Christ. But then two chapters, three chapters later, Paul very clearly says he does not allow uh, women to speak out in church in a solo manner. Women are to keep silent in the churches, for they're not permitted to speak, but are to subject themselves just as the law also says. So Paul grounds that not in culture, mm -hmm. but in the order of creation. He explains what he means by law in 1 Timothy 2, where he says, there a woman shall not teach or usurp, and actually it's exercise authority over a man. For Adam, it was Adam who was first created and then Eve. It was not Adam who was deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. So he gives two grounds there for that exhortation. So I think that uh, the First Corinthians 11 passage is dealing with the extraordinary charismatic gifts and that God uh, in the assembly at times gave those gifts to women. Uh, they were not delivering an authoritative prophecy. They were not interpreting that prophecy. They were spokeswomen uh, for God, much in the same way that um, we see other women in the New Testament having received some uh, predictive type uh, prophecy. And the prayer could actually have been prayer in tongues uh, that also would be given in the church. Because you have to compare Scripture with Scripture. When Paul twice says that a woman uh, should not uh, speak in the public service, then uh, we have to understand what he's talking about here. With, and so it might be, uh, as uh, Gideon says, a uh, reductio ad absurdum, uh, or it might be simply saying that she is to uh, have her head covered if she's going to exercise uh, in the assembly charismatic gifts, which I think is Dr. Knight's approach to this. And I didn't know about it until my students had informed me this past January, but I mean, I had read it a long time ago and forgotten it's probably more to the point. Uh, but he says that the head covered in 1 Corinthians 11 only is in the exercise of an extraordinary gift. It was not in the normal exercise of public worship. And so I agree with your second part as well, Gideon, that um, uh, the passage is not dealing with corporate worship as a whole, 
but with her exercising uh, extraordinary gifts within corporate worship. And there's another passage that I think helps us understand about head coverings, and that's in 1 Timothy chapter 2, the same place where Paul says in verse 9, I want women to adorn themselves with proper clothing, modestly and discreetly, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly garments, but rather but rather by means of good works, as is proper for women making a claim to godliness. Now understand the head covering in First Corinthians 11 is not a doily mm-hmm. or a nice hat on top of the head. It was a veil. Mm-hmm. But what you have to understand then, if she had on a veil, nobody would know that her hair was braided with gold or pearls or costly garments. And so clearly Paul, at the end of the apostolic age, is telling women how to wear their hair uncovered in corporate worship. And so I actually agree with both of your points, Gideon. I don't know if it is a reductio ad absurdum, but it is clearly regulating how women should be veiled if they're delivering a prophecy to show that even though they've had this prophetic uh, utterance given to them, that they have a role in the church, and that secondly, and, and that they are to be silent, not to be teaching uh, in, in public worship or preaching or leading in prayer uh, as an individual, and that the headdress is not for, for regular worship. Very good. Thank you for the question. And we also, I think, if memory serves, Dr. Piper, we did deal with... Um, head covering specifically in a couple episodes ago um i think you did a fuller probably a fuller discussion not necessarily germane to this exact thing but more in a broad sense so you might want to go back and look i think i think it was number nine or ten but i don't yes, remember yes i've got this new insight since then too new insight about from dr knight oh that's right through a student okay very good so this trumps what i said then outstanding <laughs> See, our theology is always evolving in the right way. No, no, no. no. In the right sense. Wrong word. It's, um, he doesn't like evolving. Shaped by Scripture. There you go. Reforming. we grow. It's reforming. As we grow in sanctification. (laughs) Yeah. Okay, quickly moving on before I get myself in a corner and can't get out. Steve Richman writes in. Now, I said his name because he's a, I live in a corner. Steve writes in, he's a graduate, he is a student of Greenville Seminary, and he writes in a question, a very good question, uh, given the climate of our day. Um, It's on the subject of spousal abuse as it relates to Westminster Confession of Faith, Chapter 24, and the subject of divorce and marriage. He writes in, the Westminster Confession in Chapter 24 clearly delineates the biblical teaching concerning marriage and divorce. Paragraph 6 states, although the corruption of man be such as is apt to study arguments unduly, to put us under those whom God hath joined together in marriage, yet nothing but adultery or such willful desertion as can no way be remedied by the church or civil magistrate is cause sufficient of dissolving the bond of marriage, wherein a public and orderly course of proceeding is to be observed, and the persons concerned in it not left to their own wills and discretion in their own case. That's the end of the quote from the confession. It goes on. As a matter of practical application, my wife and I were watching a movie involving a woman who was fleeing from an abusive husband whose actions were putting her life in danger. The question arose, in a society where such abuse is growing far more, far more prevalent, and in light of Romans 1 would seem likely to increase, barring the Lord's gracious hand in bringing revival, what biblical counsel would you offer to a wife in such a circumstance, and how does her situation fit with biblical instruction and the teaching of the Westminster Standards? Okay, Steve, thank you. The, um, the confession is very useful here when it says that there should be a public and orderly course of proceeding and the persons concerned in it are not left to their own wills and discretion. Actually, back up. Uh, willful desertion, as can no way be remedied by the church or the civil magistrate. Now, at face value, willful desertion is the man or the woman that walks away from the marriage and refuses reconciliation. Uh, some states actually require a cooling off period before they grant a divorce. And of course, if we're dealing with professing Christians, 
all churches should be involved in this uh, from uh, the beginning. That part's pretty clear, but I think Steve's question rightly gets to the issue of are there other forms of desertion in marriage even if the person is in residence? Mm -hmm. And I think there are. And I think, again, at the, this last conference, Dr. Scipione gave a lecture on the principle of equity as we would apply it to uh, modern uh, ethical and counsel situations. The principle of equity is that there are certain requirements in the Old Covenant for the nation of Israel that the confession would say have uh, been fulfilled and done away with except to the degree of the principle of equity. Are there moral principles involved there that we should apply in our situation? And one of those has to do uh, with the situation in Exodus 21 that if a, um, a man um, designates a woman for his son, he should deal with her according to the custom of daughters. If he takes to himself another woman, he may not reduce her food, her clothing, or her conjugal rights. If he will not do these three things for her, then she should go out for nothing without payment of money. There's a lot more going on there than we get into today, but I believe the principle of equity is quite clear, that uh, a man owes his wife these three things, food, clothing, or we could say food and shelter, and her conjugal rights. Now, obviously, um, willful desertion where a, a man or woman leaves the residence, if it's the woman, then she's cut off conjugal rights. If it's a man, he's at least done that if he's maybe perhaps not supporting her in the family as well. But are there other ways that uh, a man is failing to provide for his wife? Well, if he's a drunkard or a gambler and he has spent all of their money and they're, they're, he provides nothing for uh, food or shelter, uh, that is, I think, by the principle of equity, desertion. Uh, we go from that to the principle that if he is beating her, well, obviously, that is even worse than depriving her of her conjugal rights. He's violating the uh, Sixth Commandment uh, as well. And so these are things that need to be considered. Now, but let's just take it as a Christian couple, our mm -hmm. professing Christians. Mm -hmm. uh, the wife comes to the, we'll say it's a, a wife, she comes to the elders and she says, one of these things. My husband is abusing me physically. My husband is gambling or is drinking, and there's no money to support the family. The session then begins the process of uh, uh, oversight, church discipline, uh, requiring counseling, uh, seeking to see this man to behave properly to his wife. But let's just say at the end of the day, all that fails. And the man refuses to listen to the elders, continues his sinful and aberrant behavior toward his wife and her children, then I believe it's the session's prerogative to say, we declare that you have deserted your wife and we declare that she has the uh, freedom to divorce you. The same is true then if they're not Christians in the state. That's why the confession says the church or state. So the church, the state also, I think, has the, has the right to tell a man that is abusing his family that um, you're, you must cease these things. You ought mm -hmm. to be going to counseling. But if you cannot cease to harm your wife, then uh, we're going to grant her a divorce. Um, I think there's just much more there than, than what the simple – our idea of willful desertion. You can see the willfulness in what I'm talking about. I hope you can see the desertion in what I'm talking about. But it must have the role of the church. So now we have faithful churches exercising church discipline. Then, um, well, in one case, many cases, there can be a real restoration, a saving of marriage. But on the other hand, there can be a protection of spouse and uh, children in these situations. And so churches must become much more involved. We actually have another question. Uh, we might get to today of a man whose church did nothing uh, when uh, his uh, he had to divorce his wife because uh, she committed adultery, and you know that's just reprehensible. Mm. 
So the church must become much more involved as well. Let me follow up a question with you, Dr. Piper. This right. is this is more for me than than anybody else, but uh, I think it goes in line with what was just asked. You've been a pastor um, uh, for many years, and um, as the question indicates, you know we have spousal abuses becoming more and more of an issue in both directions, not necessarily from the husband, though that's the usually the primary uh, route it takes. Um, what would your counsel be to the wife uh, as far as her own safety, even prior to the to the point where well, divorce yes. would be considered? No, in almost all other instances when there's a marriage problem, separation is the one thing that you do not want. But in this case, uh, if the life of the wife or the children are in any danger whatsoever, uh, then there needs to be a, a separation also, and the church needs to provide for her and the children to be sure that they have a safe refuge, place mm -hmm. to be, as the elders begin the process of trying to uh, help the husband to... Uh, work through this. Yeah, very good. One other thing, at the end of the day, if he does not um, repent, then he, he should be excommunicated. Mm-hmm. Because he has refused to repent and listen to the church in, in a very serious area of sin. Yeah, very good question, and, and certainly uh, very practical for our world today um, and, and what we're currently dealing with. Let me skip six. Got it. We have a question coming in from South Africa, and um, forgive me, I, 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 I'm not sure I could pronounce the name if I had to, but I really appreciate the fact that people in South uh, list we have listeners in South Africa. That's fantastic and we'll very encouraging. We'll try There you go. So Who learned about it through my Facebook page. He did. Very good. I mean, my... Uh, my website. Yeah, and, and, and this might be a good opportunity since we're really doing well on time. Um, we have, at the seminary, we have begun and have been, uh, have established uh, some sort of a, a, a pretty good relationship with students in South Africa. Dr. Piper, you've been in intimately involved in that, and I know Dr. Curdo has been a, as well. Do you want to just well, mention that? Good. We have an MA program we're offering now with the John Wycliffe Theological College suburbs of Johannesburg. I've been over to teach uh, the opening program and to sign the papers with the elders and board there. Dr. Curto has been, I'll be back, Lord willing, this August. They're also taking courses on the web. Yep. And so we're very excited. We've had about eight or nine students now in, in this class, so we're quite excited about it. And if you watch my website and the seminary's website, then you can follow my schedule when I'll be back in South Africa uh, this August. Very good. Also, he asked the question, uh, Bill. He wants you to give our listeners this: What should, when should I log in to check out the podcast? I can't listen live. Yeah, um, typically uh, at the end of the program, I, I usually give an update as to uh, what's coming up, and um, so depending on how many podcasts I've done and how many is actually in the queue and hasn't been released yet, depends on when this would actually come out. I can tell you right now that this will be released. A week from this Friday, which is uh, six, seven, seventeenth, the seventeenth of April. I just happen to know that because I know what's on my schedule for podcasts. So it'll be on the seventeenth of April. Um, it would be released. So well, uh, the other thing you tell people is how to get to the all the podcasts. Yeah, and if you go to confessingourhope.com, you can listen to all the past broadcasts, all the way back to number one. They're all listed right there in numerical order, and including the broadcast to date, what's coming up, and when they'll be released. So that's the easiest way to find out when exactly you can get your hands on it if you can't listen to this one live, which is really the only one we do live anyway. So I hope that helps. Here's this question. I only just came to know of this platform today through a Facebook post about your new website. So Facebook does have positives. So I don't, so I don't know if the questions are themed, and I am now asking something outside of the current theme. They're not. We take any question. Nevertheless, I would like to know what would have uh, – would – what would have happened had Adam known the duration of his probation? We don't know how long it was before he fell. He may have already been obedient for a thousand years. It seems to me it would be really discouraging not to know what goal you are chasing. Even a new employee on probation knows how long they are under scrutiny for. That's an interesting point. Imagine Laban saying to Jacob he should work for Rachel but not tell him how long. I think I've made my point. What do you think? Okay. 
Yes. You know, we, uh, in the Westminster Standards, we say that we believe what the Scripture teaches explicitly and what may be um, inferred by good and necessary consequence. The doctrine of Trinity, as we stated, is, a, is an inference from a number of truths the Bible states. I think you're, you're right to the point here, uh, Senecosi, with your uh, analogies. Uh, that uh, a probation, to be a probation, is to be for a specific period of time. And even though God doesn't tell us what that time was, Adam would have known. But we can see other probations in Scripture, the children of Israel in the wilderness, Christ, 40 days in the wilderness. Um, But also... It had to have been fulfilled before Adam and Eve conceived, because if he was going to act as the covenant head for the race that would descend from him by ordinary generation, he needed to act before they would be on the scene to act for themselves. And so it, if he had obeyed, plus we can just infer from the test. When the test came, if Adam had obeyed, he would have passed uh, the probation. Yeah, it seems to me that there wouldn't have been four or five tests. If, no, if, it was if, one test. That's yeah. why it was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Right. The tree was a test. Satan came, tested them, and they failed. Had they passed, it would have been over. Right. Um, so, But it's a good question. It's one that other people have. So considered. we can say that we know how long it was before he fell because of the uh, genealogies that are given to us. Of, and those aren't all of his children. We know that Cain and Abel married married their sisters, and so he would have had uh, a lot of children, even uh, as we read the record in uh, Mm -hmm. Genesis chapter 5, he lived 130 years and became the father of a son in his likeness. Well, that was Seth. He'd already had many other sons and daughters by then because they had married and there was enough people for Cain to begin a a city. So... um, yeah, Adam had not lived a long time on the earth before this, simply because we know when he began to have children. Yeah, good good question, and, and again, thanks for writing in and for listening as well all the way there in South Africa. Next question comes in from Twitter, um, and it it's not framed, it kind of framed it as a question, so I'm just going to summarize the best I can. It's on the issue of exclusive psalmody. We have addressed this at length in the past, uh, but the question basically uh, asks Dr. Piper to comment on his view um, on exclusive Scripture singing. Okay. Well, I think that's a very different issue than exclusive psalmody, and it addresses some of my concerns with exclusive psalmody, namely the lack of sufficiency of the Psalter to address the fullness of the believer's experience and the progression of Revelation. But I still don't find a biblical command or inference that we only sing inspired songs. I think that we are to uh, sing as we pray, that it should be scriptural. But I don't find a special warrant for singing um, that's different from that of praying. Mm-hmm. And so just, yes, it's good to uh, pray scriptural prayers, and, and Matthew Henry is a very useful help in our learning to do that. We're not required to pray. Well, singing is is simply musical praise, petition, and thanksgiving, lament. And so I I really cannot find a a biblical warrant that distinguishes uh, musical prayer from spoken verbal prayer. Uh, That idea of warrant is gotten to only by the fact that a psalter is in existence. And I don't think a psalter in existence establishes that point. Very good. And thanks for using Twitter. And if you want to follow us on Twitter, it's simply GPT Seminary. That's the Seminary Twitter account. And the GPT podcast, GPTS podcast, is the Twitter account for the podcast. So if you're interested in using those mediums, then by all means, uh, do that. Our next question comes in. It was written uh, actually on the ConfessingOurHope.com website. Um, it was a comment that was left there, uh, and, and it has to do with the issues of the covenant. He asks, what do Reformed theologians mean uh, when they use the term the covenant? 
Are they speaking of the covenant of works, the covenant of grace, the old covenant, the new covenant, the Davidic covenant, the Mosaic covenant, the covenant of redemption? <laughs> there are many covenants in Reformed theology. Does this term have any specific meaning? I greatly appreciate the ministry of GPTS and pray God's continued blessing upon it. Okay, Nate, thank you. Well, you know, a lot has to do with context. And so because of these various meanings, the word is going to be used in these different contexts. But if we take the broader context that Reformed theology is covenant theology, then we are getting to the root of the issue in that God has always dealt with mankind through mm -hmm. a covenant. The first covenant head was Adam. Uh, when he failed, the second, covenant had, had, second Adam covenant head, Lord Jesus Christ, who fulfilled the broken covenant of works that Adam broke paid its curse and accomplished its demands. And so that all of Bible is an unfolding then of God's covenant redemption. Failed Adam accomplished in the Lord Jesus Christ. So that's really what's meant by covenant theology. Then you just have to take the context of the sentence when a person's talking about uh, a particular covenant and try to figure out at that point what they mean. So one other thing, though, although there are many covenants in the Bible, there are only administrations of the one after the covenant. There's two covenants in the Bible, the covenant of works, broken, and the covenant of grace. And the covenant of grace, as the Westminster Standards say, has various administrations, dispensations, if you will. And these are called covenants, but they're not different covenants. They are simply administrations of the one covenant of grace. Hope that helps. Very good. And th again, thank you for your question, and I just lost my place. Okay, here we are. Our next writer, uh, again, would like to remain anonymous. Um, and the question is on the means of grace in the ministry. And the question is, do you see a direct connection between a church's Commitment to the regulative principle, and that probably, Dr. Piper, probably should be defined um, for our listeners, though many would probably know, but many might not. Uh, so a church's commitment to the regulative principle and an emphasis on the means of grace in ministry. If a church member observes that his or her church, while still biblically sound, is giving increasing resources to programs, is that a sufficient or legitimate reason to consider transferring one's membership to another local body? All right, Anonymous. Thank you. The regular principle of worship is that principle taught in the second commandment and unfolded throughout Scripture, that in worship we are to do, must do, and may only do the things that God reveals to us in his word by explicit commandment or good and necessary inference in terms of the elements of worship, the things that we offer to God in worship. Now, Connected with that is this emphasis on the means of grace ministry. Perhaps you've heard it summarized. We read the Word, we pray the Word, we sing the Word, we preach the Word, we experience the Word in the sacrament. Is a Word-based ministry uh, in dependence upon the Holy Spirit to gather and perfect the elect through the normal ministry of the church. Now, of course, the question is so vague that the church is still biblically sound, but giving increasing resources to programs. Well, there are programs and there are programs. So a lot depends on the church's ministry of outreach, what it's doing for its children. And there are going to be different approaches uh, in, in this way in terms of uh, things that elders come to and Again, it's their responsibility to take their resources and lead their church uh, and answer to God for it. So, but then there's the pro programmatic church that really trusts programs to accomplish the ministry of the gospel and not the word itself. So there's a difference. Can a church have programs and youth programs and other types of activities? Yes. If it has the resources, elders make decisions. If the church is becoming programmatic, where everything's structured around programs and using programs to accomplish the end result, then I question if it's still biblically sound. 
So that's the part of the question that makes it a bit more difficult. I would not, I don't think it's warrant to, to uh, leave a church because they're beginning to spend money on programs that one does not approve of. That's a, an elder's decision, and we are to be in submission to the elders. As long as, and I'm assuming when you say, biblically sound, there's good worship, solid preaching, attention to worship, to prayer meeting, to evangelism, mm-hmm. then it's the elders' decision how the church is going to do other things, and I would not think there's warrant to leave a church in, in that situation. Yeah, and, and Dr. Piper, we live in such a flighty world now in the church where if something doesn't – and I'm not specifically addressing this question at all. It just raised the question for me. We live in a in a society in the church that you know we don't like what goes on. We're we're not happy with what goes on. It, it, it may not be rooted in a strong theological or doctrinal issue, but but we're not happy with it, and so we're quick to want to jump over to the other side of the fence uh, to another church. And do you have any counsel since this issue of leaving one to another came up in the question? What's the right way to do that? You know, if there's a, you know, if it's this issue or a doctrinal issue or a theological issue, how do you address that as a member to your session who's making those determinations in a, in a godly way? Okay, actually, I've been working on a paper uh, on this about uh, when one leaves a church, when one leaves a denomination, hmm. and there's some very useful resources. I think I'd rather address that in a, a another. Uh, uh, program, Bill, but let me just say briefly, a lot depends on uh, your place in the church. If you're an elder, then you obviously can do much more than an on-office bearer. If you are single, your concerns will be different from those who have children. Hmm. I could be comfortable in a church um, if I had no children, that one, if I had children, I wouldn't probably have in that church. Hmm. or continue in that church. Uh, there's two issues. One is error, biblically, confessionally defined error that goes unchecked. And the other is edification. Hmm. If my family is not growing uh, spiritually because of the ministry of the church, at some point I owe it to my family to go to the elders and say, we've got these problems with this or that, uh, and try to work through that with the session. But at the end of the day, that uh, there's no growth taking place, then I think that that needs to be an equitable um, separation. But we can deal more with that later. There's a lot, there's some very good principles there that I've found in Scripture, but also in church history. Yeah, I ask that only because, like I said, it seems like this is the default position when things go wrong. Yeah. And the consumer society is wrong. Yeah. And we don't jump out of a church because everything's not going the way we want it to go. Even if there are um, things that are wrong in the church, we don't have a right to leave it. We try to address it according to our role in the church. Yep. We pray about it, but we don't just jump ship overnight. Yep. Anyway, thank you for the question. And um, just so Dr. Pippen knows, we have six minutes. So I think... Um, depending on how this next question goes, we'll determine whether we get to the last one. Um, but anyway, the question comes in. The last in. one's too long, so I think do you well, wanna, maybe we should do the last one because it might one? be pressing. Let's do the last one. Yeah. All right. And then tell Virginia we'll get to hers. Well, we might get back to it. We'll, we'll see. see. Um, but um, We'll do this I, anonymously. Yeah, it is. Yeah, I, I was just scanning the question really quick because I know the context of the question and I know this, the matter, and I just wanted yeah, to make sure. Yeah, so here's the question Is a man previously divorced excluded from holding office? Must the session be made aware of the previous marriage? All right, we have two questions here. Uh, the first is answered, the first one is uh, no. Divorce does not exclude a man uh, from holding office in the church. In fact, I think that 1 Timothy 3 is often misunderstood when Paul says that the elder is to be the husband of one wife. He's writing in a context of polygamy and that uh, a man that had more than one wife could not serve as an elder in the church. 
And there's mission context now where that's happening. You don't, a, a polygamist doesn't put away his wives when he's converted, but he couldn't be an officer in the church. Uh, a divorced man, whether he's rightly or wrongly divorced, is no longer married. Uh, and so if you remarry, she's not married to two women. A Christ says that he commits adultery because he's, if he remarries wrongly, he's violating his marriage covenant. But if a man is biblically divorced, and we've already talked about the uh, willful desertion, and the other, of course, is quite clear immorality, uh, then uh, obviously he should not be excluded from holding office, and that's not a sin. Even though if a person's involved in a, a biblical divorce and they recognize that, well, yes, I've had faults in the marriage too, we all do, and we confess those things. But that's still not grounds for what the other person in the marriage did. But even if a person is unbiblically divorced and then are converted or come to repentance and deal properly with the unbiblical divorce, let's say that it's no longer can go back and be remarried, but they could ask forgiveness of the spouse and any children involved and the church knew the situation— I don't think that person is hindered from. In fact, we've had, we've had a student before who's presbytery sent him to seminary. Um, he'd, he'd been an elder in the church and committed adultery, and was remarried and came to repentance, and eventually. Um, now, obviously, in those situations, a church needs to know that a man was uh, unbiblically divorced, has repented, and because the congregation would need to know that in terms of are we willing to, to trust our souls to such a person? But at least the next question, must the session be made aware of the previous marriage? By all means, the session should be made aware. Even in the case of this writer, his biblical divorce, his divorce was biblical. Uh, in fact, from what he has said, it would have been sin not to divorce. Mm-hmm. Um, the elders need to know because they have to assess the qualifications of the man, not is he a one-woman man, but has he managed his household well? All right, we had this problem, but here's your marriage now. What did you learn from it? Tell us about the background. doesn't mean the congregation needs to know. In a case like that where it's a biblical divorce, I don't think that necessarily the congregation needs to know about that. But I do think the elders should know. And... I recognize at times that can be painful to have to go back and and talk about those things in the past, but in God's providence, uh, that He will also sanctify you through. Yeah, very good question. Get back to Virginia's question. And um, well, we have two minutes. Okay, I can hear, do hers in two minutes. You can do hers in two minutes. Okay, yeah. Virginia writes in, uh, long-time listener, many-time writer. <laughs> But she writes in from Brazil, and uh, she says, How can we understand that Jesus is the begotten of the Father if he has no beginning and no end? Okay. There are two ways the church has understood this language. Historically, going back to the Nicene Creed, it's that he has eternally been begotten. Well, both he's eternally begotten. So it's not a in time begetting, eternally been begotten. The Nicene formula seems to say that eternally he has received his deity from the Father, and the Spirit receives his deity eternally from the Father through the Son. They're same in substance, equal in power and glory. There's just that eternal begetting. Calvin called that formula into question, and he said that really denies what we call the aseity, the independent self-existence of the Son and the Spirit. And so Calvin said that it was the personal property of sonship that, th- that the Son eternally received from the Father and the spirit of, spirit of procession. So it's an economic relationship that is expressed in this eternal relationship and not the deity that they received. Yeah, very good, and I'm glad um, I didn't have to answer that question on my exam. <laughs> We dealt with this in class, um, very in-depth, actually, and, um, well, anyway, (laughs) I don't think I could have answered the question now, Hmm. 
Probably shouldn't have said that. No. Uh, anyway, um, no, very good question, and, 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 it, and it shows that you're thinking about these things, and that's really encouraging uh, to, th- to know that people are thinking through these theological issues uh, thought and being thoughtful about them. Anyway, real quick, I'm running out of time. Just want to let everybody know what's coming up. Um, uh, next week I'll be um, releasing, I'll be interviewing Dr. Ryan McGraw this week on his book that he did through RHB, uh, The Foundation of Communion with God, The Trinitarian Piety of John Owen. So I'll be interviewing him this week. That will be released uh, in two weeks. Uh, This program we're doing right now, The Faith and Practice uh, number 13, will be released in between. So um, until then, we do thank you for listening to this particular edition of Confessing Our Hope, the podcast of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary. And God bless.